Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns Walker. Today, we welcome you back to the Butterfly Forecast. Well, Julie. Well, Paula. <laughs> it's really good to have you here. Paula, what's that piece behind you? That is my newest basketball schemata. It's a series that I started in 2007. And recently, there was re-interest in the series. And I was in that lovely show in New York with the publication of a book about artists who have taken on basketball as subject matter at some point in their career. I'd always loved this series, and I thought, I'm doing more. So I've done two more since. And um, I just feel a freedom now that I'm not teaching to do all my series because I never left one because I wasn't interested in it. I wanted to start other things. But it was really, for me, a desire to understand how race works through the representation of professional sports. And that also then led me on to thinking about women's bodies and how they're represented in commercial fashion. Not the fashion, I love fashion, but it was more about the commerce. And I was thinking about how these courts, I have a, a, a very generic, you can't see the whole thing unless I tip it, a very generic court like a, at a YMCA or a community center, but it's surrounded by the little plates of professional courts. And it's really about how young athletes, you know, there's always that pressure and the hoop dream. How does that uh, work in communities that are disinvested? So just thinking about how race and class and professional sports are intertwined and looking sort of underneath the beauty of a sport that is so fantastic but to think about how the complexities of race and how our, un, our justice is not yet to be reached uh, and how that has historically played out in professional sports. So I also did football. Uh, in fact, I had a discussion last night at the uh, exhibition. Uh, they have one of my football paintings. And it's the same thing, except that I'm actually using the bodies of players traced from newspapers before everything went digital. That's incredible. I love how you've tracked the demographics, the racial demographics of each sport. Paula, what was that series a long time ago you did? Um, and when you looked at it from afar, it looked like Kintercloth. It's the same series. I was turning um, basketball and football. I was using football fields and treads from shoes. That's what originally got me started on sneaker treads. And I played them out in a kind of pattern that looked like Kentacloth. Uh, and I called them royal schemata because I was thinking about how Kentacloth is was a royal, a fabric of royalty and traded and thinking about how players are elevated by being chosen, the few that are chosen to play professionally. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I already, with a little snippet of, of any of our listeners who are just getting introduced to you and your work, like already you reveal this steady passion that you have for your work, but also for whatever the pattern is that you've picked up. I mean, that's why I love your series. You just go, you go, you go, you go. And then like, oh, the next level of awareness about that pattern. Were you always like that? Like if you walk back to, you know, it's not easy to express in the arts. 
a passion. No, it's not. And certainly my work changed, but I think of it as, you know how an LP has a fast side and a slow side? Mm. The, the work that you have on your wall is what I consider my slower side. It was a looking at nature to think about how that quote, which I always butcher from the Quran about all things in nature, about a touchstone that lead to the divine. That's the meaning of not, and I apologize to anyone who knows that really well. <laughs> but this idea that pondering nature, nature reveals itself. It opens up and it becomes a sort of touchstone to spirituality. Hmm. And then I was thinking about that a lot, about that quotation of in the Baha'i writings that says, be anxiously concerned with the exigencies and the requirements of the age in which you live. And I was thinking very much about social issues of justice. And I thought it's easy to say, I believe in the unity of all people, but uh, we're not at the Kumbaya moment. <laughs> and so how is it that I, as a as not as not a person of color, can take a look from my distance and say this seems to be a, a often how we are restricted. Our sight of one another is restricted by how we are represented in the media and the role that the media plays in shaping our views of one another. And so wanting to try, um, I remember my daughter, when she was doing a doctorate, her professor who wrote a book on the history of race, also talked about how race works and the work that race does. And so I started to become obsessed with trying to examine that with my work. Mm -hmm. You really do. I mean, you always seem to depict another dimension that we missed. I hope so. Like different areas that aren't typical conversations mm -hmm. and um, it's so beautiful. So, yeah, I, I'm so keen to know, in the beginning of your life, were you drawn to these observations in society, or were you drawn to art that spoke of them? Like, where where did this begin? I do remember looking. My mother was an artist. Um, my father was a fashion, excuse me, an interior designer. She was a fashion illustrator. So there were lots of images around us all the time, lots of books. And I would look at books and very often be disturbed about if there was a, a subject of color, how they were depicted. But I do remember, and, and we lived, I mean, I lived around Boston and, and it is segregated. And I remember just becoming very troubled. And then all of a sudden my high school was integrated like day and night. <laughs> And uh, it was a girl's school, uh, and um, I began to have great conversations with other students of, with students of color about race. And it was so at the very beginning, um, no one had language for it. But being in a biracial marriage for 100 years um, and realizing how, and I saw this in the art world, I saw it in grad school, how white people were uncomfortable talking about race. And um, it's much more, much better now because it's, it's an issue that they can't avoid, we can't avoid. And, and just being aware of how half of my family talks about race all the time because it's a matter of survival and how there, it isn't a matter of comfort. It's just a matter of needing, I mean, this is a, an aspect of your daily life. And just, and trying to use 
that familiarity, what I learned, what I see, what I saw, as a way to try to bridge areas. I remember having a group, uh, there was a tour that came to my studio in Chicago, and it happened to be all white women. And so they asked me about the work, so I started to talk about it. And I remember thinking, there's absolute silence in here. And now that was maybe eight years ago. I think that would be a different conversation now. Definitely. Well, I love the theme that that thread of the inequalities and not just in the world, but you really target what aspect of society. I think that's harder to identify. Like I just drove by the other day, a 35th Street CTA, where you're beautiful. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, your glasswork installation there. Every time Mm -hmm. I drive by, I'm like, everybody stop your car. Please rise. <laughs> it's it just like elevates the whole city, you know. Um, but I love in that piece of work about baseball and the Sox and the Negro League and and just how you're showing these two layers, how one reaches into the other and and affect a change. It's mm-hmm. right there. You're you're really talking about the history of institutionalized racism and baseball without talking about it, though. <laughs> well, they, the White Sox gave me all kinds of archival uh, images of players. And the Negro League used to play at the old Comiskey Park, then now cellular, U.S. Cellular Field. And so I had these great images of Jackie Robinson breaking the color line. And so I thought, you know, there's two lines of windows. So what about using the Negro League breaking into the uh, upper league of the uh, professional sports and then dominating it. And I just used the bodies, the actual figures, players from different times, of course. But, you know, very often there's kind of silence when the work goes up. I don't know how people see it. Mm, I think it's because it's groundbreaking. Smushi, you find that in your work, too. I mean, I, I think anytime, I mean, that's the power and beauty of artists, you're, you're presenting something that perhaps is a new aspect of reality that people weren't open to. It's like when you listen to your favorite song, you're like, oh, they just say that thing. I could never figure out how to say. <laughs> I think, you know, art and especially in your case, design, it's not fashion alone. It's, it's design and this insight into society that you leave imprinted in your work. Do you find people sometimes react like awkwardly to when you present something new? It's hard for me to judge it that way. But I, I was thinking, sorry, on a different topic, I don't mean to steer it away, but Paula, how did you get into art? Was it because you had a voice that you wanted to, like, was it because there was, you needed a medium to address these kinds of thoughts or feelings or were you attracted to the creative aspect of it first like how did you start I mean I started as a child my mother would take us to the museum to draw and uh, everything around we'd come home from school and she would draw us and so there were we were just sort of immersed in I remember going to the Van Gogh show and we came home and she made a cake with purple cake with yellow frosting. I mean, it was just a thing. Her sisters were artists. So I knew I always wanted to be an artist. But at one time, I used to work very, very figuratively. I 
drew, you know, who was around me and, uh, you know, going through undergrad and then going back to grad school much later, the art world had changed a lot. It had become much more conceptual. And so I was thinking an awful lot about what I wanted to say. It wasn't just so much what I observed, but what I wanted to say. And at the same time, uh, Camille was doing her doctoral work on race, and we were sharing a space um, in Chicago's South Loop. And I remember she would sit behind me, and she would read me her dissertation. And um, she was reading, devouring all of these books on race. And I was looking at these books on race, not reading what the amount that she read, but it was just a wonderful immersion. And to have the honor of raising biracial kids, all of whom have their own distinct relationships with their identity. And just learning that it's such a beautiful world that I wish so many could appreciate as our strength and not as a problem. So in answer to your question, Melody, it was first the art, learning about our history, um, but really finding my voice at different times, starting with this work with nature and then moving into this work about society and about justice. And now I'm working with women's bodies. Yeah. Can you um, say more about that? I've, I love your goddess series. <laughs> That's incredible. Thank you. It's, it's an acknowledgement of the power of the female form. And it's also an acknowledgement of how much uh, fabrication goes on with a commercial, you know, how much Photoshop has created this idealized body that we don't actually have. I mean, there's a few women who have it and not for very long. But I was really, I, I, I am, I was, and I still am, <clears throat> though much more abstractly now, exploring those bodies using tracings right out of magazines. I get people to give me their old magazines. And um, I love to take these very, you know, sexy poses and just draw the curves and then twist and turn them into these abstractions. And, you know, we're never without a moment when, especially right now, when the news is not focused on our bodies. I think about everything from, um, I mean, I, I, I should say, I love beauty. I think that beauty really does come from the divine. I don't think beauty does well commercialized. If we leave it to commercial interests to represent us, then we don't see our power. We're still kind of comparing ourselves to a kind of idealized version of ourselves that leaves most women out. And I would love, that's why I love, Melody, I love what you're doing because I feel like it's empowering women and the women, um, the clothes, the women, the way they wear them are badass instead of oh so sexy. Um, and I just feel like it's a, a great move, a courageous move. And I think that women obviously respond to it because it's not, you know, spandex stretched like a Band-Aid over the ass. But just to think, uh, to, to find ways to both be formally beautiful, um, because the art has to be art, but then to pack a kind of um, reflection about ourselves and for women to see ourselves, so for them to be able to look at a little bit of a stiletto that's coming out of that, that 
funny shape or the curve of a hip, um, elbows, breath. And to think about how our bodies are just, they are the constant um, fascination and obsession uh, of society. And what do we do with that? You know, how do we raise our girls to be strong and independent? Right. Smishy, I wonder if you'd be, if you even remember what you shared, but if you'd be open to sharing something that you shared with me before. I remember we were talking about, I don't remember what collection I had made, but you were talking about how certain clothes bring out certain attributes or bring out certain parts of a woman. And you were saying how, mm. like, if a girl is wearing like a tight red dress, you know, it, it, some, you know, it, but it was a deeper thing. Do you remember this? No, but I'm happy to, <laughs> happy to talk about just observations of that, if that does it for you. Yeah. We don't realize, I think, the complexity is because the feminine has never been equal in its own mind. So then, you know, the projection like Paula, what you were saying, you know, I actually did some research and according to like a world um, study on weight, size, um, culture, do you know that less than 1% of the female population of the world qualifies to be a modern day standard for a model? I read that. I read that statistic in that less than one percent. Yeah. And then of the less than one percent that make it into a career of modeling, all of them will be airbrushed. So that actually means we don't have a single accurate model. And now when females go and buy clothing, they're kind of caught in the projection lane. If I wear this, what does society perceive me as? Exactly. If I wear that, what does society perceive me as? Or what if a woman has, um, from their background, they're as far away from that 1% as you can get. Mm -hmm. So what kind of clothing should they don themselves in, in my observation of what happens to us energetically when we wear clothing, our energy changes every single time. So it either frees us to express our attributes and our our real design, like what, what a person becomes when they pass away, the sum of a person. We are trying to find an outfit that allows us to either express it or disguise it. Wow. So, you know, Smishy, what you were talking about, like, you know, if you're wearing a, a short red dress, I have nothing to say about that in particular, you know, more power to you if it allows you to express what you really are. And that's why, have you ever seen this, you guys? I love this. I, I absolutely love the power of a soul. You could see anyone, man or woman, or just a human being wearing a garment. And you can really see that before you can make a decision about if you like the garment or not, you notice how much they match the garment. It, it, it allows them to be themselves. Mm -hmm. And then you move away from fashion particulars. You don't really care, short, long, you know, tight you know, uh, super loose. It, it doesn't matter. What matters is it frees them to be themselves. And I think that's, I wish we only designed clothing for 
people's reality. And Smushi, I think that's what you do. It's an aspect. Uh-huh. Paula, I was in Mel's shop once, and it was summertime, and she had made these um, – Sushi, what were those neoprene shorts and matching top? Do you know what I mean? Well, I looked at them and I was like, no way <laughs> for, for myself. <laughs> and that would be never. And then this teenage girl came in. She was like, cute. And she goes in the dressing room to try them on. And right after her, this very elderly woman came in and looked at the same outfit. And she looked at me like, ooh, I'm trying these on. Yeah, she tried them on. They both looked equally wonderful, but unique. And so you can't really judge by what it is. It's more like, do you see yourself expressing yourself in that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, but conversely, have you guys ever worn something that you're dying to get out of the minute you slip into it? Totally. Well, I remember what you said, Melody, about how you wished you could wear a sweatsuit to <laughs> I don't know, was it the Emmys or, or something? It was some big event in Hollywood. I said, yeah, I want to wear my sweatsuit. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she does. Yeah. <laughs> I think people should wear the, what, they, what makes them feel empowered. From my position, I'm thinking about social issues and how these things can play, because we don't live in a vacuum. And um, just thinking about the kind of, pressure that women who don't fit any kind of uh, that 1% or 20% or 40%. And I just think it also has to do with a lot of our, our, our issues around gender. We have so tightly pushed young people coming up into these um, roles. And so many don't feel happy about them that they say, heck, we don't, we don't need gender. Well, I'm above gender. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's so interesting, too, how there's this exploration of gender right now, because behind the exploration is examination. We've just ruined it for both. And so nobody wants to be either. And, I, I, you know, though, I wish we would move away from identifying ourselves in the physicality of it and start moving into the inner reality. And you should be free to express, express it all. But let's not take on new affectations about what gender-free looks yeah, like. Yeah, let's not then you know? put people in a yeah. hundred other categories and they, they just have more to choose from, but they still have to be in one or two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're still not themselves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really funny. You know, I was recently talking to this, uh, this boy, he's 10, he's just super precocious. And he was telling me that he really thinks that if people dressed like his version of aliens, then maybe they'd learn to be humans. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, he already sees precocious it. Precocious and insightful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what is your version of an alien? He goes, anything. We just, they just adapt. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> Clearly, we need to be listening more to kids, yeah, to really children. Good. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Paula, I was, um, you know, I was telling you earlier that I was reflecting on us coming together today for having this conversation. And I was thinking about all the stages 
that you've been through, and you were touching on a few here, but honestly, Smishy, you cannot believe how um, courageous, how free Paula is when she like embraces something. Um, when you were doing musicians, Paula, I still have that piece of that uh, upright bass player, mm-hmm. you know, he's been with me for like decades. Mm-hmm. And because he's so serene, he's so calm, he's got it all, he's got jazz. He's I was wondering if you're aware of, like, first of all, that you have passion, like even in the days before anybody knew your work, and I mean nobody, when we had little kids, mm-hmm. you would pay rent for a studio apart from the house. And you would go there every day with your enormous thermos of coffee, (laughs) really good coffee, and your music. And if I'd walk into any of those studios from Evanston to Fulton Market area, like the whole nine, you had music going like something new, something I'd never heard of before from some country. I'm like, what is that? And you're just painting and you might have like three works going at the same time. And that's not something you teach at art school. That is something that's you. That's what I'm trying to decipher. Where did that come from? That's brave. Oh, it's so sweet of you to put in those terms. I don't think I felt brave. I just think I felt obsessed. You know, I never, ever thought I would do anything but make art. And um, I um, was saying to Bob yesterday, I've always been jealous of architecture. I love architecture. And he said, Oh, you'd be a good architect. I said, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> but I love design. <laughs> I'm just in awe. Your husband, Bob, is so the opposite. Like, I feel yeah. like he's such an intellectual. Mm-hmm. I mean, every time he talks, I'm just like, this is the smartest man in the world. <laughs> <laughs> he's also and, so eloquent and, you know, it's just like, so how does that work with with you too because he has supported me melody like no one he 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 actually gives tours of the work and i said you do a better job the whole series that i did on public housing coming down in chicago he takes people on tours around the house and talks about it he has always been a fan the funny thing is he a couple of times he has purchased works that were for sale that someone was going to buy because he said that's not leaving the house But then there were a couple of openings where he said to me, who are you? (laughs) We need to go out to dinner and talk about this because I need to know where this is all new work. And he hadn't seen it because my studio was outside the house. So, you know, I know I've been a lot of places. And his joke is that people could walk around the house. Now my studio is on the first, the lower level, and it's a great space, a much better space than I had recently in Chicago. And he said, it looks like you would never know that all this work was done by the same person. Mm -hmm. And I remember someone saying to me something about um, consistency. And I remember something my mother said to me uh, as an artist, and she was talking about um, Motherwell's Ode to the Spanish Republic, these mid-century famous abstract expressionists. And she said, I would never want you to get into recipe making 
What do you do when every museum around the world wants these works? You stop making them? No. But to get very often, I mean, I think about Romare Bearden's work. He got discovered when he started making those collages. He was doing lots of other work at the time. By the way, he revolutionized collage. There's before Romare Bearden and, and, and post Romare Bearden. So they weren't wrong. But I think every artist is so wonderful to see a retrospective of a show of a person's work because you see the many places they've been. And I'm, I'm not unique in that. But at some point you find a voice. And for me, I keep I'm working on three series. <laughs> I've got three voices right now. And I think some people would like to see me doing one or the other, but I have to be true to myself. And if I have these things I feel strongly about, then I'm, I'm going to do that. So if, if there's a little bit of courage, I hope that I can keep that up. That's why I have a strong prayer life. <laughs> do you feel like you always have um, those voices or that inspiration? Because that's so much output as an artist. I mean, it's so inspiring. <laughs> yeah. I realized that as I was raising three kids, I was still exhibiting every two years. That's insane, Paula. It, it didn't feel insane. It felt great, except for when my niece came to stay with us and she poured paint all over a painting. <laughs> she was a toddler. <laughs> um, I, if, if anything, I feel like I need to be producing more. Stop sitting and thinking and stop doing this or that. and Get down in that studio and you finally got the time and get in there and make it. But... Uh, I, I've, I'm, I am a, a bit work obsessed because work to me doesn't feel like work. It just, I mean, my arm hurts sometimes. <laughs> so I use my left arm for house cleaning and my right arm for, for work because I'm not going to waste cleaning the bathtub <laughs> on my good arm. But I look, Melody and, and Julie, how about yourselves? I don't, I think about all of the things that you're juggling and I have I, I can't fathom how you do it all. And then on top of that, you're breaking, you're revolutionizing what individuals can do toward peace. The very question that you ask of your guests by showing your bringing your best self every every day, every time to the sister net, open to any woman who wants to come, or any identifying woman who wants to come. Um, the things that Melody that you're doing in fashion uh, are so inspiring to younger women. And um, Julie, what you're doing as a healer, I mean, how many people have do you help every day? And as you said, the, the calls come late at night. <laughs> and then you still show up Saturday with a five-minute talk to give that I know how long. I've done video work. I know how long it takes to get something down to five minutes. It's a lot. So I feel like um, a, a tiny ant in your shoes, both of you. Well, not me so much. I mean, I, it's weird with my work, it's deceiving because production takes such a long time. You know, by the time, like I think of something that I want to do and then by the time it's actually executed, it's like months and months later. So sometimes a series of things will come out which mm -hmm. is what's been happening like the, this last four or five months. I've had a lot of things come out, but ever since I got pregnant, I think I was so consumed with 
first of all, you know, it was a surprise. It wasn't a planned pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So just dealing with that um, on a physical, emotional level, (laughs) it drained me. So it's been really difficult to be creative Mm -hmm. just because I haven't been in my body and I didn't realize how important my body is as a vehicle for me to get to a place to even be creative. But with Julie, I think you're one of the most deceiving people ever because you are so graceful with your time and your energy and you do more than I've ever known anyone else to do. Like you have the biggest output of anybody I know physically, emotionally, spiritually, like you're using every single one of your faculties and senses and gifts at all times in all situations, but you never talk about it. You never complain about it. You're always like present yourself as like, it's a service and joy to do it. And I'm in awe at that. Like that's something that really, really blows my mind because I'm just like how does she do it without (laughs) without like a therapist a healer a a doctor (laughs) uh, like a a team of people because I know even me trying to pursue being like a little bit like you in that way I need like a a tribe and I mean and maybe you have one (laughs) Maybe you have one, but I'm just like, I don't know how you do it. And nobody knows. Nobody, all the people you help, nobody knows about the other. Everybody thinks that they're your person. Like you just, it's, it's really mind blowing. Uh, Melody, I could not, I agree with every word you said. I think we have to start yeah. Julie Walker <laughs> no. fan club. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, Melody. I've told her so many times, no matter what happens to her, she always lifts it up. And people don't realize that is a discipline. That does not, it's not just, she just turns this on and it's super easy. That is a hard won battle. Over the cell. Holy smokes. You stop this. I'm melting and my face is on fire. (laughs) In all fairness, uh, thank you very much for seeing me that way, you guys. That's why we're friends. (laughs) You're so generous. Um, I really think two things are a conundrum for everybody. But for myself, I feel like it's amplified. One is I can never really reach the amount of uh, need in the world. I'll never be able to even scratch the tiniest surface. And I know that it's very humbling. It's humbling to know you'll never be an expert. Every day my work is brand new. I don't know what somebody's going to bring to me. I never get to be good at what I do. All I can do is show up. That's all I can do. To have a stranger walk through that door and have expectations and you don't know what they're going to bring to you and you give it your best every day. So I'm with Melody. I I do give it my best, but I think it's because I'm aware like how little 
support is out there in the world. I know what it feels like for myself. And the other thing that I think is important, both of you are incredibly, you're gifted, you're skilled, you've got like layers and layers and layers of talents that you offer. And for me, I do not. I I could never make it in a worldly way. All I have is what I am instead of skills and tools and gifts. So I think that's very humbling. And if, if in the end it looks like a lot, it's, that's only in the end. It's like when you pile up a lot of work, Paula, like that studio, do you remember <laughs> your studio in Evanston? Sushi, this would have killed you. I was going over there. She's got kids. Bob is paying for the rent and he comes over that one day and she has stockpiled. There are so many canvases. There's hardly any room for her to paint and she has no shows coming up and nothing was happening at that particular time. And Bob walked in so so loving and so cool. He assessed the studio. And I wish I could imitate him because his voice is like priceless. <laughs> you have to hear it. And, and I would never do injustice to him. But he's saying, he goes, Paula, you haven't shown any of this work for a very long time. Tell me again, why do we pay rent? <laughs> <laughs> It's funny. I don't even remember that, Julie. And you said, you said, I'm a painter, Bob. I'm a painter. (laughs) And that was the truth. And you're, so look, you had this stockpile of beautiful work, which by the way, the next season, your next show sold, all that stuff sold. But like, how much courage does it take to create so much stuff before you know if anybody's going to get it? Well, it, every time someone collects a piece. It is such an affirmation that they, that the work spoke to them, but I always, I never know if that's going to be the last one. And I have said to myself, you know, all the years you have, you could make work and it never goes anywhere, but I'm going to keep making that work because I can't imagine not. That's true for the three of us. Smishy could make like a, a whole line of things and nobody might get it. But yeah. she's courageous till enough until later, yeah, when you have to buy it for a bazillion dollars on exactly. <laughs> some treacherous site. People are not always ready. <laughs> exactly. And I never know what people are going to do with my work. I mean, I see them. I give them the best. It has been a common thing for someone to call me 10, 15 years later, and they'll be like, you probably don't remember me. I worked with you once, like 15 years ago, and you told me blah, 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 blah would help me. And if I didn't, this is where I'd go. And I ignored everything you said. And I went and there. I went there. <laughs> and they're like, I'm back. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm like, wow. No, I think there's always going to be need. And you bring something that maybe you don't even understand, you know, the gifts that you have. But I have learned to believe in people. And it's funny because even this even um, carries into the art world that has become so difficult for a lot, for a lot of people. I introduced Angela to her first ready-mades at the High Museum. And I said, you have not had the Marcel Duchamp moment. You don't know about the urinal that was ours. <laughs> and hers was the Felix Gonzalez Torres double clocks. 
And uh, she said, he just bought these clocks. And I said, that's all about the ready-made. That was like an early 20th century thing, um, revolution in art. But one of the things that I told her that I used to tell my students, because as students who start off as freshmen, they're very conservative and, and uh, they, you know, they came because they could draw and that's why they wanted to be artists in that art school. But I told them that the one thing that I have learned is to believe that the maker is earnest in what it is. They believe in what it is they're trying to do. And when we do that, we're much less likely to dismiss. And so when people come to you and they're not ready, uh, they come back eventually and you're covering new ground and you're covering ground and people are used to science being something that they can measure. They're not used to people who have gifts that we don't understand, but we've all seen the magic. <laughs> we've all seen you see things. <laughs> I'll never forget when I had the car accident and you came to the hospital and you looked at my, you just looked down at my chest and you said, I don't like the look of that. And then a few minutes later, the nurse came in and said, we just got the x-ray results back. You have a hairline <laughs> fracture in your chest from, from where the seat felt. <laughs> so there. Wow. You can't unsee what you see. Yeah. But you don't have to explain what you see to everybody. No. If they ain't, if they ain't ready. That's why you, Paula, are free when people come to your exhibits. If they come to your exhibits, they want to see. If they don't want to see, they're in for a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes they see it better if I explain some things to them, including a Chicago collector who has my work. And I asked him, he came to the latest show at the Ukrainian Institute, and he said, I said, well, what what are your thoughts? And he said, I'm not seeing this work. I'm used to your work that's figurative. And then I explained to him how it starts. And then at the end, he said, oh, okay. And then he was into it, but he needed an explanation. I'm sure that that would have happened to Picasso, too, from his early work. Picasso didn't care. That's true. That is so true. That's why I love storytelling so much, though. I mean, I think it's because I'm I'm an artist, I guess, I've always had a more practical side to me. So I think about yes, yes. in my upbringing, my mom was a true artist. Like that was my first definition of an artist. And I think it was because she was so romantic about it. Like with her paintings, you know, it was such an emotional relationship. It was very personal mm-hmm. for her. And, you know, and I never... That's why I never thought I was an artist because mm. I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know how she sits in front of that canvas for three months and I'm like, no, you know, I was like, who has the patience for that? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I think that's where the storytelling component, like now that I am a kind of artist, you know, I've accepted myself as a type of artist or a designer or whatever. Absolutely. The storytelling is so compelling to me because it's like, when you see people's um, inspiration or like how they piece together their own hybrid of like how they got to where they burst something new from existing things, it's the best. It is. It's so inspiring. And, you know, Smishi, you just made me realize that um, in this season about Quest for World Peace, we need more artistry in people's minds. We need to be able to 
create world peace. It's not there to be uncovered. We have to create it. And so you have to use that part of you, you know, stretch until you can see what your little footprints would lead to that create a an aspect of world peace. I think mm. one of the reasons why it's not more a topic is because nobody can see evidence of it yet. Mm. And so nobody thinks that what they have might be the whole thing that leads to world peace, you know. And I'm talking about the consciousness. Politics will follow people, not yes. vice versa. Exactly. Exactly. So cool because I was at the airport the other day and um I thought of you, Smushy, because I saw this guy wearing a Peace Corps t-shirt. Oh. <laughs> I can't tell you. I almost like jumped at, jumped out at him. I was like, oh, my God, I haven't seen anything yeah. like this in so long. And I, I just wanted to like pull him aside and be like, are you a part of the Peace Corps? Like, where did you get this shirt from? How, why are you wearing it? But it was so it was so cool just to even mm-hmm. see it out there. Because it was like, oh, it still exists. There's still glimmers of people that are working towards that or believe that or aren't um, all the way worn down or defeated by Mm. our current state, which I know oftentimes I am. But even seeing things like that, like little glimmers of it almost energizes me to be like, oh, okay, wait, if there's one other person, if I just know that there's one other person that's down for this, or there's a group of people that are working for this, then I can be down with that, but I can't do it by myself. Well, it is really fabulous to see that now public school students, at least in Chicago, can't graduate from high school unless they've done a service project. Wow. Yeah. And so many art students now, um, I mean, I can only speak for the School of the Art Institute but it's in Chicago, but it, I'm sure it's the same in all because the academics all are very much connected uh, across art school. They, there is so much focus on community engagement that students as a part of their uh, even freshman curricula are going out and thinking about how they relate to their background, their community, the community that they're in. And art has become as much about community engagement and service. And I think that's a, a great, great, inspiring trend that I hope continues. Oh, yeah. So we're not alone. <laughs> we're not <laughs> alone. Paula, thank you so much for giving us this wave of inspiration about all the ways we can see the, the patterns emerge and then the contrast of what we can offer you know, making these creative changes. I love that. My thanks to you and Melody for inspiring me every day. Thank you. It was an honor to be here with you both. It's mutual. I love you. I love you, Paul. Love you guys. Love you. Thank you. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us. See you next time.